You're listening to the podcast version of How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. For our August 30th show about the health effects of GMOs, I talked with members of the science community and health community about what might be driving the increase in autoimmune diseases, asthma, and allergies. Now, of course, there was a lot more to talk about than was possible during our broadcast. So here's an extended version of the interviews with experts at the Celiac Research Center, which is at the University of Chicago. I am Carol Shilson. I'm the executive director of the University of Chicago Celiac Disease Center. Our center is one of the leading centers in the world on celiac disease. We focus on education, advocacy, and research, as well as raising awareness and diagnosis rates. So we have a team of expert clinicians and researchers and materials that help people when they're newly diagnosed, as well as trying to get diagnosis um, and uh, courses and programs that help medical professionals to learn more about celiac disease uh, to help get the diagnosis rates up. And then we have a lot of free services like our signature program, which is a a gluten-free care package that we send out to the newly diagnosed across the country free of charge. And we do an annual free blood screening. We typically screen about 500 people per year at-risk groups like first-degree relatives or those with other autoimmune diseases or people who are simply having symptoms and simply couldn't get the test from their doctor. So we do offer a lot of free services to the public as well as educational materials and programs for both the layperson and the medical professional. And then our uh, research is a big focus as well. Well, Carol Shilson, for a long time, people thought of celiac disease as something that was simply genetic in origin. It is most definitely uh, genetic. It's the world's most common genetic autoimmune disease, actually. And yet, it looks like the percentage of people with celiac disease is increasing. It is, and that is true for most autoimmune diseases. Celiac, just to give you kind of a range, is 10 times more prevalent than type 1 diabetes. But of course, we know and hear about type 1 all the time. Celiac is kind of getting on the radar now, but um, it is about 1 in 100 If somebody has the autoimmune disease, type 1 diabetes, is it sometimes the case that they test positive for celiac disease as well? Sure. There's about an 8 to 10% overlap with the two diseases, Um, and that's true of other autoimmune diseases as well. So if you have thyroid disease, or I have a a whole list of them on our website too I can go through, but any other autoimmune disease, you should be screened for celiac. And other risk groups include Down syndrome as well. Is there a chance that if someone has celiac disease and they're eating gluten-producing foods that it might make another autoimmune disease worse? Someone with celiac disease still eating gluten, yes, it can complicate a lot of other things going on. They might be a result directly of the celiac disease or uh, the celiac disease might be aggravating the other condition. Now, one thing I'm puzzled by, if, if this is supposedly a genetic disease, then how can it be that the prevalence is increasing because our genes don't change that fast? Yeah, it's um, it's still a mystery to all, even the best researchers in the world. However, the most well-accepted theory at this point is something called the hygiene hypothesis. And that is basically that we are too clean. The cleaner our society gets, the higher the rate of autoimmune diseases. And it's fundamentally the principle is that that early on, we're not exposed to enough negative things in our system to build up that immunity for our immune system. So it's not as strong as it should be. And certainly in less developed rural countries, you'll see even with the same gene background, you'll see a much, much lower 
prevalence of celiac disease. What about other possible reasons for the increasing rate of celiac disease and similar autoimmune diseases? There are thoughts that it might be the modern Western diet, for instance. And that is plausible. I don't know of any evidence-based studies that have shown that definitively, but it's certainly plausible. I mean, the, the actual wheat grain has changed a lot. Certainly some think that that might be adding to the problem. What about something as simple as the fact that there is more sugar in the diet today? There are more processed foods that have a different way that they digest. There's no scientific evidence-based research on that yet, concluding any or all of these things are contributing, but it's certainly possible that any or all of them could be. Now, when you mentioned that the wheat germ itself or the wheat seed has changed, that's the most gluten-producing grain that we have. And how has that product changed, that simple thing called a seed? From what I understand, it's, for lack of a better word, gotten more intense. So it's sort of hyper-wheat from what it used to be. So, And, of course, we're eating a lot more of it than we did thousands of years ago. So in children at risk for celiac disease, we know that introducing gluten in very small amounts between four to six months of life, especially while breastfeeding, has the most protective effect on either preventing or at least delaying the development of the disease. So the amount of gluten that we eat is much higher. And especially in the the United States, we're still trying to work with the FDA to finally get a standard of what is gluten-free. But there's been a variation for years in Europe versus the United States. And largely it's because the amount of gluten or wheat products that we eat in the U.S. is much higher than even in Europe. So there could very well be something to how much we're eating of it, in addition to the fact that the grain itself has been kind of beefed up, for lack of a better word. The gluten grain has been beefed up. (laughs) Now, um, when you say that there's a difference between Europe and the United States, is that in the rates of celiac disease in the population, that there are more people with celiac per 100 people in the U.S. than there are per 100 people in Europe? No, no. In fact, it's exactly the same across the U.S. and um, Europe. The prevalence of the disease, which we now know to be 1% and leaning toward 2%. But the diagnosis rate is certainly higher in Europe um, because physicians were taught correctly about celiac disease, that it is a common disease, so they have it on their radar to test for it. Where in the United States, unfortunately, until about four or five years ago, the medical textbooks really didn't address celiac disease beyond maybe a paragraph or two, and they had incorrect statistics that you know, it was one in 10,000, you'd never see it in your practice, don't worry about it. So it's just been a lot of work to re-educate and re-inform doctors about the truth about the disease, to have them even think about testing for it. Well, then part of the increase in the number of people diagnosed is just that doctors are getting better at diagnosing it. But part of it is in the last generation or two, there are more people per hundred that just get the disease. Correct. There are two things going on. The prevalence, just the actual occurrence of the disease is increasing. And that's the same with the other autoimmune diseases. And then the diagnosis rate separate of that is also increasing. And that is what we work to try to do to increase that. But just this basic prevalence of the disease on its own is increasing. That is so puzzling. (laughs) It is. It is. You could do a lot of uh, research on that. Many have, and we still haven't concluded exactly what is causing it, but it is definitely trending up. But you were saying that if somebody, if a baby early on 
eats very small amounts of gluten-containing products or is breastfed by a mother who eats small amounts, then they're less likely to have celiac disease than a child who's eating a lot of gluten products. Is that did I hear that right? It's for a child who's at risk. So for instance, I have the disease. I have a two and a half year old son. When he was uh, about a week old, I did the genetic test on him to find out if he got my gene, which in fact, sadly he did. I knew based on the research that, well, I was intending to breastfeed anyway, but introducing gluten should occur between four to six months in very small amounts. And that would hopefully delay or prevent him ever developing the disease. And the reason we know the amounts are so important is there was an epidemic in Sweden 15 years ago where the infant feeding practices changed and gluten was added to the formulas. The Swedish are very responsive people and they listen to the guidelines given by their doctor. And there was a huge spike in celiac disease. When they realized this, they changed the formula back not to have gluten and that went down. So they were getting a super load of gluten early on, and that proved to certainly increase the occurrence of the disease. So that these babies from the time that they started formula, and for some of them it was within days of being born, they were getting a lot of gluten. Exactly. Well, you mentioned that there's also sorting out whether it's just wheat or it's a lot of other products that might have glutens in them. What other grains might have glutens? Well, the gluten that you need to be concerned about with celiac disease um, is the protein found in wheat, barley, and rye. You know, there's rice gluten and things like that, but those are not of concern when you have celiac disease. It's just wheat, barley, and rye. But there might be other related immune system malfunctions that might have to do with other proteins in these grains, you think, possibly? Not that we know of, but for instance, uh, it wouldn't necessarily be gluten, but a lot of people with celiac disease also happen to be lactose intolerant, um, at least upon initial diagnosis. And that's largely because of the destruction that went on in their small intestine with the untreated celiac disease. And oftentimes that will correct itself. The lactose intolerance will correct itself. But it is certainly possible to have intolerance to other foods. And having celiac disease doesn't necessarily make you more prone to that. It's just quite common that an intolerance, say, to soy and happen to be celiac as well. And it might be partly the disease that if your gut is leaky and if your digestive tract is sick and damaged by the celiac disease reaction, then it, it may have more trouble with a lot of other things too. Well, certainly your, your gut is working a lot harder when, when you have untreated celiac. There's no question. And it's, it's being overtaxed and not getting you know the nutrients where they need to go and, and allowing some things through that probably shouldn't go through. So yeah, that part um, that's very true. Are the researchers concerned about celiac being partly caused by the increase in GMOs? I have not heard that specifically, but when I presented this list to Dr. Guandalini, who is our medical director and founder um, and one of the leading experts on celiac disease in the world, his reaction was these are all certainly plausible, but um, he wasn't aware of any definitive study showing one to be a bigger cause than the other. So it's just that these are all unknown because nobody knows quite how to research them efficiently enough to get money to get the research done. Right. It just ha it hasn't been investigated. It's not to say it's not possible. We just don't have the answers, sadly. The most important thing, uh, certainly for celiac disease, is that people do not start a gluten-free diet until they're properly tested and diagnosed for celiac. Because once you start the diet, the tests that are necessary to confirm that you have the disease 
are invalid. So you need to be eating gluten in order for the tests to be accurate. So that's one of the biggest challenges we have is people have already started the diet and then they say, you know what, I, I feel better, so I'm going to keep with it. Well, that's great, but because this is a genetic disease and you do pass it on, there's no margin for error. I mean, as little as 10 milligrams of gluten can trigger the autoimmune response. So if you don't know definitively that you have the disease, you might not be as strict with the diet. You know, And most people that do self-diagnose come back, whether it's months or years, and say, gosh, I really, really want to know if I have this or not. And the only way to do that is to reintroduce gluten for about 12 weeks with one serving a day. And that can be very challenging, even if you don't have celiac disease, just to reintroduce gluten to a system that is not used to it can cause a lot of quality of life issues. So it's very important that people not start the diet. If they suspect they have celiac disease, they should go get the proper testing and diagnosis. And then separate of celiac, there is something called gluten sensitivity out there. And that is a real thing where people just don't react well to gluten and they have often many of the same symptoms as celiac disease. The big difference is, as far as we know, there's no long-term damage if you are exposed to gluten while you're gluten sensitive. Well, with celiac disease, we know it can lead to many other complications like osteoporosis and thyroid disease and cancer and those kind of things. As far as we know, with gluten sensitivity, the endpoint is a, a little different and not as serious. So we're working actually on a marker that could definitively diagnose gluten sensitivity as well, because right now it is simply diagnosed by ruling out celiac disease and then finding that the patient has a positive response to removing gluten from their diet. But there's no test out there, despite the many companies on the internet that tell you they can uh, test you and tell you definitively if you have gluten sensitivity. There is no uh, valid test out there for it right now. The only, um, there's a celiac panel that has been, you know, tested and tried and true. So the tissue transglutaminase blood screening test, it's an antibody test, is the best one out there right now for screening for celiac disease, and it does so with about 98% accuracy. If uh, the person either has type 1 diabetes or happens to be something called IgA deficient, that test would not be a good test for them. And there is another test called an endomesial antibody test that a doctor could run that would pick it up. But all the other nonsense going on on the internet, it's just not scientifically valid. So there are a lot of people spending a lot of money on, on tests that aren't truly telling them what they have. And, and the danger there is if they assume they have gluten sensitivity without first ruling out celiac disease, there are lifelong complications possible and that it passes on. So it's really important to get the diagnosis or rule it out and then proceed to see if it's gluten sensitivity or some other intolerance. I gather from what you're saying that if someone is gluten sensitive, they may have a little bit more room for margin of error. If somebody has celiac, they can be doing damage to their system without realizing it because the symptoms might not be strong enough to warn them away from casual eating of some gluten products. Correct. And most people with celiac disease actually have no symptoms at all. Unless you look at their duodenum and see what's happening in their duodenum. Correct. So when you look in the small intestine, and not even just on looking, once you, you take the biopsies and look under the microscope, you can see that there's a problem. And those folks, even if they have no outward symptoms, they have no you know, GI symptoms, they have no headaches, none of the more than 300 symptoms out there, they are still suffering the same damage and could result in the same consequences of thyroid disease and osteoporosis and cancer. So it is very, very important to get the diagnosis rates up. And then for first degree relatives of those who are diagnosed, they have a much higher prevalence of the disease. It goes from one in 100 from the general population 
up to 1 in 22 for first-degree relatives of someone who's biopsy-diagnosed. My nephew got diagnosed about two years ago. I got diagnosed in 2006 as an early type 1 diabetic. Ah. And at that point, I decided to cut out grains from my diet and just eat a very low-carb diet. And uh, then thought, well, maybe I ought to get tested for celiac. Right. And who knows where I fit because I'm one of these people who had been limiting my grains for quite a long time. And I came out negative on all their tests and I don't have the genetic markers that would say, well, phooey, you are definitely this. It's a funny disease to check out because I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm better off without grains. And if you don't have the DQ2 or the DQ8 uh, gene that is associated with celiac, you can rule out celiac disease. But if you're finding that you do feel better without gluten in your diet, then you could very well be gluten sensitive. The, the population that's gluten sensitive is probably three to four times the population with celiac disease. So there's a large body of um, you know, the population out there that does not respond well to gluten. And all of this is on the rise. Either it's because we're so darn clean in how we live, or maybe it's something else. Could very well be how, you know, how we produce things or additives or you know, a whole host of things. But as I said, unfortunately, we don't have the research to back it up, so I, I would only be guessing. <laughs> Our research summary, um, it's posted on our website. It's just three pages, but it tells you the focus of our research, which is a cure for this disease in the next 10 to 15 years. And we do believe that can happen, and it would likely come in the form of a vaccine. So it would prevent the disease from developing in those with the genetic predisposition. But in people who already have active disease, it could reverse it. Um, and for those folks, they'd probably have to go for a booster periodically, but it could reverse the disease. So we're very excited about that. And we're working on the first mouse model in the world on celiac disease. We so far are the only ones that have been able to produce full-blown disease in a mouse, which as you can manage, and we're very nice to little mice, but um, we can't can't test things out in humans. So that is a, a big step in testing out therapeutic intervention on the disease. So we're, we're proud of that. But we have a research summary that talks about that and the other things we're working on. Um, and then our fact sheets on our website are really useful. We kind of break it down by the top 10 categories when it comes to either symptoms or diagnosis or um, follow-up. Uh, and they're just sing, you know single-page overviews of each. And those are really helpful. Oftentimes, people take those into their doctor to educate the doctor a little bit about the disease as well. That was Sharon Shilson, CEO of the Celiac Research Center, which is at the University of Chicago. You can hear more How on Earth interviews and episodes of the show by subscribing to our podcast through iTunes or by visiting our website at howonearthradio.org. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.